The National Gallery of Victoria has one of the most extensive fashion and textile collections in the Southern Hemisphere, holding over 8,000 works by Australian and international designers. You may have seen the recent Gabrielle Chanel exhibition and the stunning parade of Chanel suits in lustrous textured tweeds with their trademark embellished buttoned pockets. Or from a few years ago, you may have come across the extraordinary Scaparelli Surrealist-inspired Hall of Mirrors jacket, with its small appliqued mirrors framed in gilt embroidery against black velvet and worn over a backless dress. This was definitely cutting-edge fashion in 1938. Hello and welcome to the Critical Fashion Studies podcast. I am your host, Natalia Lusty, and I'm joined today by Britt Craig, a graduate researcher in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Britt. Hi, Natalia. It's great to be here. Today, we will be speaking to Paola de Trocchio, Curator of International Fashion and Textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. Paola is also a renowned writer and researcher of fashion, and today we are going to talk about the NGV Fashion and Textiles Collection and some of the recent NGV exhibitions involving fashion and fashion designers. Along the way, we will discover the important role that fashion plays in shaping our social and cultural worlds as well as fashion's relationship to our bodies, identities and moods. Welcome, Paula. Can you please tell us a bit about how you became interested in fashion and what you do as a curator of fashion and textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria? For me, I've, I've always been interested in fashion. I almost don't remember when I wasn't. I remember back to when I was in primary school and I knew always that 391 and 746 were the numbers of the books in the library. So I I was always seeking out fashion books. I was always looking at fashion experiences. I remember my year 10 work experience was at Sports Girl. I was volunteering at the Melbourne Fashion Festival. I was always interested, but I never quite knew how or what I wanted to do. But I remember in my honours year, in my university degree, my lecturer was looking to place me somewhere for an internship. And she'd recognised that I was interested in fashion. And she asked me what I would think about going to the National Gallery of Victoria and say, dating a 19th century dress. And I just remember my mind exploding and kind of going, wow, people do that. That sounds incredible. Yes, please sign me up. So I went, I started my internship there in 2002 and I've been there ever since. We acquire things for the collection, so that's sometimes working with people locally who have offered us their, you know, grandmother's morning gown from 1904 or some suits that they wore in the 1970s, all the way to working with international fashion designers, Australian fashion designers, uh, and also auction houses, collectors, dealers all over the world. So it's very broad in that regard. And then in addition to that, putting exhibitions on or permanent collection displays, as well as talking about fashion. We do a lot of public programs and a, a lot of public engagement and looking after the collection. Could you provide a brief overview of the collection? Sure. The collection is extensive. Our earliest textiles are from the 5th century, so Coptic textiles that were excavated from archaeological sites in the 19th century. Then there's sort of a bit of a gap in the collection and we have textiles from the 16th century. Our fashion collection starts with accessories from the 17th century, so they're like bags, sleeve ruffles, things like that. 
And then we collect garments from the 18th century. So we've got men's and women's garments from the 18th century, big kind of, you know, panniered women's gowns, uh, men's three-piece suits, uh, which were, of course, kind of elaborate frock coats and breeches, uh, and then all the way up to the 21st century with some of the latest torture pieces. And also across the world, probably the majority of our collection is French, English, and we have a significant, of course, Australian collection, but we also have fashion and textiles from other countries as well. Fantastic. Thank you. The NGV holds a significant collection of haute couture or high fashion garments by some of the leading fashion designers of the 20th and 21st century, Chanel, Scaparelli, Balenciaga, Alexander McQueen, just to name a few. The collection was made possible through the Christina Campbell Pretty Fashion Gift. Can you please tell us how this gift came about and the significance of the acquisition? And also, what are some of the notable designs in the collection? Absolutely. Christina Campbell Pretty's amazing gift did enable us to enhance the collection significantly. So she tells a beautiful story about how she was inspired to donate such a momentous gift to the NGV. Christina had been a friend, a donor, a supporter to the NGV previous to her support specifically of the fashion and textiles collection. But what happened was in, I think it was 2015, her husband, Harold, passed away and she wanted to mark that moment with something momentous and transformative in his honour. And at the same time, a collection was presented to the NGV as a potential acquisition, and she recognised this as a moment that would be quite major in order to mark Harold. So it's, for me, and I guess I'm a little bit sentimental, it's a very romantic story, and I love that it's a woman honouring her husband with this fabulous fashion gift, because it wasn't just her that loved fashion, it was Harold as well. Christina is an elegant, beautifully dressed woman, and they both appreciated fashion. And Christina in particular recognises the importance of fashion and particularly the importance of fashion in, I guess, the female story. The collection that came to us is just women's fashion. We don't only collect women's fashion, but this particular collection is a really significant collection of women's fashion and haute couture. And we put an exhibition on display of it in, I think it was 2018 or 2019. And it really presents a beautiful history or catalogue of haute couture. It starts with Charles Frederick Worth, who is known as the father of haute couture. He is significant for a number of reasons. He was the first designer to put labels on his garments, so aligning himself with the painter or the artist and signing his garments, but also aligning the textile aspect of fashion with the making aspect of fashion. So rather than a client going to a textile manufacturer or, you know, the textile vendor and buying textiles and then going to their dressmaker and having the garment made up, he actually united those two practices and coordinated the textile with the actual fashion garment, creating the sort of fashion design that we know now. There were some 18th century, early 19th century pieces in the collection as well, but sort of telling that story of haute couture did start with Charles Frederick Worth and then all the way up to Alexander McQueen. So it allowed us to expand our holdings of some really significant designers like Paco Rabanne, like Pierre Cardin, like Yves Saint Laurent, but it also allowed us to introduce new designers into the collection, probably lesser known names like Bilway Sur from the 1920s, Pacan. We had some Pacan, but not a lot of Pacan. And I think probably for me, the really significant pieces are also the Madame Grey. She was a designer who worked in the 
30s predominantly, but all the way up to the 70s actually. And she invented this pleating technique, which made gowns look like Grecian statues. And she just kept adapting her technique over the decades, remains incredibly glamorous, incredibly relevant, and the pieces themselves are extraordinary. So over the years, the NGV has exhibited these amazing pieces with exhibitions of of prominent fashion designers, uh, most recently the Gabrielle Chanel Fashion Manifesto exhibition. This is the most comprehensive exhibition of Chanel's designs ever seen in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about the scope of the Chanel exhibition and Chanel's contribution to fashion as an haute couture designer and in terms of the way she transformed how women dressed? The exhibition itself was the initiative of the Palais Galliera in Paris, and it was sort of fascinating because they'd recognised that there had never been an exhibition of Gabrielle Chanel, which, considering how significant she is as a designer, is quite extraordinary. Uh, And it was also quite lovely to call the exhibition Gabrielle Chanel as well, because I guess in popular culture, we know her so well as Coco Chanel, but her name was Gabrielle Chanel and her first designer label was Gabrielle Chanel. So it was a sort of recognition of the woman uh, and what she had contributed. And they worked with the Chanel archives, with their own collection, and also with other museums. There were loans, including loans from the NGV. And they featured the exhibition first, and then it traveled to Australia. So it was a great opportunity for us as the NGV to host the exhibition and also contribute to the exhibition, but also for Australian audiences to see what she had contributed to fashion. And much of what she contributed was the development of a modern wardrobe. So design innovations like suits for women that were easy to wear, that showed a different sort of silhouette than the kind of bustled, kind of contorted Belle Epoque silhouette that was popular at the time. So features such as pockets on the outsides of clothing at the hip, which allowed a woman to put her hands in her pockets or also small objects, which seems normal to us now, but was quite revolutionary at the time because women's clothes didn't have pockets. They had hanging pockets that were hidden under skirts, but that was because they had sort of, you know, larger skirts that was sort of earlier on, or they had handbags, which were external. But this idea of actually having an entire outfit, which you don't need so much more to go with, it's not so decorated, it's not so cumbersome, it's not so big, was about the changing times and about the changes in culture and society towards modernity and also a modern woman and a modern way of living and dressing. There were suits from the 20s and 30s that were featured that showed this new simplified and elegant and uniform way of dressing, the little black dress from the 1920s and 30s. There was a romantic silhouette that she designed in the 1930s and then her kind of resurgence again in the 1950s, in 1953 when she reopened her couture house at the age of 70, which is extraordinary, in order to design again Uh, modern suits for a lifestyle that was more appropriate for women. So rather than the new look silhouette of Christian Dior, which was cinched waists and big skirts, she again wanted to reintroduce that simplicity, uh, that ease, that elegance of the two-piece suit for women in the 1950s and 60s uh, and then through into the 1970s. That was just I guess, for want of a better term, sort of more user-friendly. And she died in 1971 and and designed right up to the end. So the exhibition charted her life, but also her design contributions all the way through her life. 
We have both seen the show and we're amazed by the range of designs on display, but also the innovation of the display itself. How have audiences responded to the Chanel exhibition and what have been the standout pieces for the public? One of the stories actually that resonated in response to that question was talking to some of the members of the Chanel team, so the team here, and they had organised special tours for their sort of VIP clients to go through the exhibition. And what they had said to me was that some of their clients had actually cried. There was this sort of emotional response to it. And I thought about that and I just thought, well, I mean, for me, you know, I'm kind of a fashion historian. I'm very familiar with these stories. But for people who were perhaps clients of Chanel, but also broader than that, the general public, they don't necessarily know these stories. So it did evoke a lot of emotion for people. Some other women told me that she'd had this light bulb moment where she's like, oh my gosh, these are all the lessons that my mother told me about how to dress, which were sort of Chanel's lessons in how to dress from, you know, 1920 onwards. So there's this kind of, I guess, permeation of the design tropes of Chanel through the way that people dress, but they aren't necessarily familiar with the fact that where they've come from or the fact that they've come from Chanel. So I think for a lot of people, they had a, a realisation or a moment where they thought, oh, okay, so this is why I do what I do. This is why I dress how I dress. This is where this came from. And I think that was really beautiful for a lot of people. Thank you. We we loved the exhibition. So um, thank you for telling us that. And I think, uh, you know, I had a mother who was a, a Chanel woman, so I absolutely relate to that story. Yeah, great. Thank you. I, I really loved it because I thought we sort of had this idea of what Chanel designed. And then I also saw so many pieces that I wouldn't have originally associated with Chanel. So it really expanded my idea of of the designs that she created. Uh, you also recently created a pop-up collection of Yves Saint Laurent designs from the NGV archive. Can you tell us why you were drawn to focus on Yves Saint Laurent? Sure. There's sort of a couple of reasons. One is is that in Paris, a group of museums have come together to collectively honour Yves Saint Laurent and his 60-year anniversary of the establishment of the house, which was in 1961. So although Paris itself has got some extraordinary fashion collections and some fashion museums, like the Pompidou, the Musée de National Picasso, Museums that aren't typically fashion museums have sort of grouped together, six of them, to honour Yves Saint Laurent. So they've injected Yves Saint Laurent in amongst their Picasso collection or in amongst their modern art collection in order to express how Yves Saint Laurent was inspired by the arts. And he really was. So I guess the flip side of that is that we've been behind the scenes or quietly acquiring some extraordinary Yves Saint Laurent pieces often with the help of Christina. So it seemed like a great moment to honour the 60-year anniversary of the House of Yves Saint Laurent and put on a small selection of works. And if you are visiting the NGV, they're on level two. So you go up the escalators and you head towards the Picasso and they're behind the weeping woman. So they're almost like a little bit of a hidden gem. And it was a great opportunity to put them on display. But also, in addition to the display of four garments that we've got on display, the Yves Saint Laurent archive. So we've got, uh, in addition to the garments that Christina helped us to acquire, we've also got a fashion research collection. So we've got a collection of Vogue magazines from sort of, I think 1919 is the earliest one. We've got Yves Saint Laurent 
a collection of his sort of facsimiles. So for each collection that he did, he did his sketch. He had like a little swatch of fabric that he'd pinned to it. They'd all have a look number. And while the originals of those are in the Musée Yves Saint Laurent in Paris, there was actually a collection of facsimiles that was available, which for us is excellent information just to show that design process and the entire collection. Uh, So we've got some of those on display too. So collectively, they present a nice story from design concept to presentation and then editorial in British Vogue. Two of the marvellous pieces in this pop-up collection that honour the arts include a pink satin jacket from 1980, which is a tribute to Jean Cocteau, and a Vincent van Gogh-inspired sunflower jacket from 1988. Can you tell us a little bit about these two extraordinary items? Yeah, and I think they're sort of part of a wider dialogue of Yves Saint Laurent being influenced not just by the arts but also by literature. And we see it from other designers where they're sort of inspired by a moment or a particular artist, but it was very much part of Yves Saint Laurent's um, entire career. So his first... Ode was sort of like to Pierre Modrian in 1966, and then he continually referred back to artists and poets. So the Sunflowers jacket recreates Van Gogh's Sunflowers painting in embroidery, and the depth is extraordinary and the the variety of materials. So you've got like a sort of thin organza ribbon that the embroidery house, Lesage, have used. Uh, There's beads and there's sequins that are all positioned quite three-dimensionally to recreate the painting and it catches the light in a really beautiful way and it gives depth in a really beautiful way. And the Cocteau is just, it's very elegant. It sort of honours the beauty of script in a lot of ways, which we're used to seeing kind of t-shirts and garments emblazoned with logo, not logos necessarily, but phrases now. But when this jacket was released in the 80s, it was still relatively new. So it is this kind of celebration of text, really, and this celebration of poetry, which is really beautiful. Works of fashion are also included in the current exhibition, Queer Stories from the NGV. What role do you think fashion plays in shaping or indeed transforming our ideas about gender and sexuality? And in this sense, how would you define the political potential of fashion? I think it's really interesting because, I mean, what queer does is it's very broad in terms of um, its time period. And what it tells us, or I guess in some ways what we know anyway, is, is that fashion is completely embedded in how we express ourselves and when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking about it's it's embedded in how we express ourselves sort of socially, you know, those social conventions around how we're expected to dress in a particular way. So, you know, the most basic thing of, you know, man wears trousers, woman wears dress, you know, those things sort of are social codes that we just absorb without even really thinking. But then there's the boundary pushers who play with those codes. And whether or not you're part of that kind of, you know, boundary pushing group or whether or not you're just, you know, a regular person in society, you're always engaged. You're always part of it. You know, whether you put on that dress in the morning or whether you put on those trousers in the morning, you're engaging in whatever those social protocols are around your representation of gender and identity. And I guess the people who are more aware of those codes and more interested in those codes will play with them. And then 
those people who have played with those codes will then end up influencing how future generations and future societies view those codes. So for me, that's a lot of the reason why I'm so interested in fashion, because it's a perpetual dialogue, uh, not just between kind of society and, you know, fashion in inverted commas, but it, it's everybody's engaged in it and it touches and is affected by what's happening more broadly in society always. One of the designers featured in the queer exhibition is Lee Bowery, the late Australian artist known for his provocative performances and costumes. In many ways, his work was quite prescient, and I think it's interesting to consider how his aesthetic has influenced other fashion designers. Uh, For instance, one that comes to mind is the avant-garde Japanese designer Reiko Kubo of Comme des Garçons. Her unconventional silhouettes and gender-blurring designs have been likened to Bowery's work. Do you have any thoughts on Bowery's influence on the fashion world? Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually really interesting because he has influenced a lot of designers. Definitely, you know, Ray Kubo's one, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Alexander McQueen, John Galliano. And I was thinking about it, and I think there's a number of reasons. One is, is that he created such visually compelling imagery. So, you know, he was using not just dress, but makeup, hair, sort of every element on the body in order to communicate whatever point that particular performance was communicating. I think the other really interesting thing is the performative element. And fashion has always got a performative element, but it doesn't always get communicated that way because I guess the focus is often on the actual sort of garment itself. But he really played up that performative aspect, which is often so much a part of how fashion is presented or what fashion is getting chosen or what fashion is getting made or how messages are communicated. So he really enhanced that and drew attention to that. I mean, he was an impressive figure. He was a tall man. He commanded a room. And then from then on, you know, he put something fabulous on top of himself and often performed as well. But it also struck me that once he put, and he didn't only wear dresses, but one of the dresses on display in queer is um, called the Metropolitan, which is a large floral ball gown. It just struck me that once you put a man in a dress, because of the conventions of society that we exist in now, but are also currently being broken down, which is also very interesting, once you put a man in a dress, that becomes a performance. Whereas once you put a woman in a dress, it's not so much a performance. So, I mean, it is, but you know what I mean? So I think that sort of enhances the message as well. But then it also made me think, you know, there's so much happening in fashion at the moment that is about genderless clothing, about this kind of freedom and ability. I I sort of wonder how long that man in a dress kind of scenario is going to have the potency that it it has. I would love if it got completely broken down. And I think this is probably the first time in society that we're, we're, we're getting close to that because, of course, men in skirts have been presented in, you know, the 60s, in the 80s, et cetera, et cetera. But Lee Bowery is fascinating for designers because of those three elements, because his, his imagery is visually compelling, because he addresses performance, and they're just so much a part of what fashion is. It was really interesting when I attended the weekend of the opening of the queer exhibition, I was struck 
by how many men in dresses there were. So it was really quite lovely to see all these men in frocks come out and, you know, perform and be, you know, having been inspired by people like uh, Lee Bowery. Yeah. And also, I mean, even something like the Met Gala, it's it's becoming yeah. much, much more common for men to attend wearing dresses. And maybe it's just the moment or maybe it's something that can become a new norm. I guess time will mm. tell. Let's hope so. Mm. The Permanent Fashion Collection and Archive is an extraordinary resource, uh, showing us how fashion influences all aspects of cultural life, from aesthetics and design to gender and sexuality. What do you see as the primary role of the collection and where do you see it heading in the future? The role of the collection, one way that I continually think about it, is as a sort of repository of design and a repository of fashion history. It's like a fashion encyclopedia in material form. And it's important in order to record what has been before, of course, so that we can continue to grow and develop our knowledge. It becomes important, I think, for designers to look at from a technical point of view, for sort of techniques and inspiration. And we're constantly drawing on it for presentation in exhibition in order to tell new stories and different stories, either about moments in time, about fashion designers' contribution, and just the way that queer does this kind of rereading of the collection. And I think that having the artifacts ourselves, having the objects ourselves allows us to keep dipping in and keep telling new stories about the history of design, the history of fashion, the history of art practice. And sometimes there'll be focused stories specifically on fashion and sometimes there'll be cross-disciplinary stories that allow us to sort of tell a bigger picture about what's been happening or what's happening right now. And that's the beauty of having such a broad collection, you know, something that goes all the way back to the fifth century. We just get to keep diving in and keep reorganising it and representing it and rereading it in order to tell different stories about ourselves and the culture that we've been part of. Thank you so much, Paola, for talking about the extraordinary fashion and textile collection at the NGV and sharing your deep knowledge of fashion. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And if you're interested in seeing some queer fashion, the queer exhibition is on at the NGV until the 21st of August. Hi everyone, Harriet here. This is the final episode of the Critical Fashion Studies series. We started this podcast as a way to highlight some of the brilliant work happening in the Australian fashion industry and to explore some of the ways fashion is shaping our diverse and dynamic local culture. We have been so delighted to be able to speak with some leading fashion experts, artists and industry representatives over the past four episodes. And we really hope these conversations have given you new ways to think about ethical fashion, not only in terms of manufacturing and production, but also in relation to cultural diversity, history and storytelling. Thank you so much to Emma, Kim, Nina, Amanda and Paula for sharing their knowledge and their love of fashion with us. Thank you to Anissa and Brett for co-hosting, Nell and Thomas for behind-the-scenes support, and you all for listening. It's been such a pleasure to share these conversations with you. We hope you keep in touch and follow along with the future activities and publications of the Critical Fashion Studies Research Group. Thank you.